0: A terrible thing you did as a child that you feel really bad about as an adult. I'll go first. I used to steal a kid's lunch every day and eat it right in front of him. So here's my countertop, for example. Here's my plate. Here's his plate. We both always got pizza and we always sat next to each other. We actually played at recess together. We were friends. But he was a little guy and surprise, I was a fat kid. So I just thought since he was such a little guy, he doesn't get hungry like I do. So I would just simply say, hey man, look over there. He'd look. And I would grab his pizza and put it on my plate. It's mine now. And then he'd look back and realize he didn't have anything on his plate. And then he'd look at me and say, Hey man, I really don't like when you do that. And my stupid fat little self just says oh, I'm sorry, man. I'm just hungry. That's all. And I'd absolutely house that pizza right in front of him. And he didn't get to eat lunch. So yeah, that was first grade. So that was a really long time ago. If I remember correctly, I think his name was Dylan. So if anybody knows a 24 to 25 year old guy named Dylan that went to Jinx West Elementary in Jinx, Oklahoma, let me know. Dylan, if you're out there, I'm sorry, man. And I want to take you out to the most expensive pizza place that you can think of. I know it's not going to completely make it right, but I at least want to say I'm sorry. So here's the update on Dylan. We found him. So I didn't have a yearbook, but my best friend did. He let me use it, and now we're here. So this one's me, and that's Dylan. And I mean, for anybody wondering, that's my buddy Colin. Big shout out to my buddy Colin. Anyway, we found his last name on that yearbook, so that allowed me to find him on social media. I scratched out his last name and some information because I don't know if he wants that out there. But I said, hey, man, I don't know if you remember me, but we went to Jinx West Elementary together. I posted a TikTok about taking a pizza at lunch. It's gained a little bit of a following, and I wanted to reach out and make amends. And I sent him the video. And he responded. He said, this is amazing. haha, of course I remember you, and I've seen your fantasy O-line TikToks. He's seen some of my videos. I remember this happening, but I had no clue it was you. Next time I'm in Tulsa, where I live, pizza's on you, man. I said, you bet it is. Seriously, let me know. I want to see this through. Hope all is well, man. He said, absolutely. Hope all is well with you too. It looks like I should be in the area in mid-April or May. I'll let you know. I said, looking forward to it. So yeah, hopefully he reaches out and me and him can get together. But I just want to say this. Like this situation, there's a ton of stuff in life that I regret. But when I was 17 years old, I gave my life to Jesus, and I was no longer defined by any mistake that I made in the past. So for all the people bashing me in the comments saying I'm a horrible person, I'd say you're 100% right. There really is nothing I can do to make up for the stuff that I've done. But thankfully, I have a Savior that paid the price so sinners like me could be saved. Don't mean to get all preachy on y'all, but Jesus is King.
1: Ain't that great? <laughs> I love the fact that he just puts his moral regret right out there on TikTok. Um, it's interesting. We're talking about moral regret this week, and we've been in this series called No Regrets because of this. It's not true. We all have regrets, right? Um, there's four different types of regrets we're talking about, and this week we're going to talk about moral regrets. And our goal is this. We don't want to avoid our regret and pretend like they don't exist, We also don't want to wallow in our regret and just stay stuck in them because that's not healthy and it's not biblical, but we want to do this. We want to walk right through our regrets to get onto the other side because I think that's what Jesus wants us to do and possibly find some wisdom along the way so that it won't keep causing regret for us. Or for other people. So, uh, real quick, let's make sure that we get this, right? What is a moral regret? Let's make sure we define this. It takes place when we violate a value that we hold dear. We claim to hold a value, and then we violate it. And if I'm honest, I mean, I don't even know if this needs much explanation, does it? We kind of know what it is when we, we do it. We knew the right thing, and then we didn't hit the expectation. And that's so different than like... Yeah, I got an A-minus in that. You know, like, like oh, I was shooting for the A and got an A-minus. Like, those aren't moral regrets. Moral regrets are when we're like, listen, I never, ever will. I never, ever will until we did. And then we were left with regret, right? I'll never cross that line, but somehow we do. So moral regrets sound like this. Uh, if only I had done the right thing. There's a lot of research on this. And uh, every week I've been pointing to this, and if you want to read this book, you're welcome to. It's called The Power of Regret. Author's name is Daniel Pink, and he gives us a lot of research about people's experience about regret. And here's what we find out. Moral regrets are actually the most painful of the four regrets. And they tend to stick with people the longest. Um, moral regrets, more than likely, they involve an action instead of inaction. It's not like, oh, I didn't do something. No, you actively did something. And violated some ethical code that you hold. But there's interesting, there's two pieces to the research that I find fascinating. And by fascinating, I mean this. I don't know if I agree. I'm questioning their validity. Let me give one to you. Um, moral regrets make up only 10% of what people regret. Of all the regrets that people have, the research shows that only 10% of people's regrets are about moral regrets. Um, I'm sorry, I'm calling that into question, because I I don't think that's probably true. I think the reason why it's only 10% of people's regrets when they're asked in a survey, even though it's anonymous, is because moral regrets are the most painful. What I mean is when people share their regrets, even if the survey is anonymous, they're not going to lead with their biggest moral regret. They're going to do what you did last week in your community group. You got together and you talked about regrets, right? And what did you say? I mean, you're like, well, yeah, yeah, I have regrets. Like I regret when I was a teenager, I didn't put enough suntan lotion on and I've got this skin cancer stuff that comes up every now and then. Like it's a regret, right? It makes you sound irresponsible, right? It doesn't make you sound evil. You're you're looking at me like you don't get it. Let me make it really clear. You probably didn't lead with, yeah, 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 I regret armed robbery in the four years I spent in prison. You probably didn't drop that one, even if it was true. On a survey, I don't think people are about to just give up their deep moral regrets. Uh, Here's a second factor in this research that I'm kind of calling into question. Um, He writes that moral regrets are complex because people don't agree on morality. Well, we know that. People don't agree on morality, but we know why that is, right? Right? Everyone draws the line on morality in their own favor, (laughs) right? I mean, don't we go, listen, listen. Yeah, I've done some things wrong in my life, but like the lines over here, it's really not that much of a moral regret. I could have done better, but you know, it's just an A minus kind of regret, right? It's interesting though, if we are Christians and we follow Jesus and we believe that God has given us his word, his word is not a suggestion book. His word actually gives us the line of morality that says, here it is. Now, I, I get this. As Christians might read the same verse and go, well, is the line here? Or is the line here? We might have trouble figuring that out all the time. But the, the reality is this, is we're followers of Jesus. Then we're saying this is God's divinely inspired word and we will follow it. So it gives us our ethics. Are you with me? It's different. By the way, the book that Daniel Pink's book that he wrote, it's not from a Christian perspective, okay? So I'm just adding to it, but I'm just wondering, like, I think people will have moral regrets more than 10%, probably. Uh, I do have some good news for you. Uh, And I know this is kind of weird. You're like, hey, welcome to Sunday. We're going to talk about moral regrets. Wah, wah, wah. Nobody's really excited about that. But here's the good news for you. If you actually have any moral regrets in your life, it actually tells us something about you. It tells us this, deep in your soul, you desire to be good and do good. And that's not true for everybody. There's some people who go, I don't care about being good and I don't care about doing good. But because you carry a regret, you're like, no, 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 I had a standard. I mean, we don't have to talk about God's standards for a moment. Just you had a standard and you're like, I didn't live up to it. None of us have. But the good news is that you want to live with a certain level of honor. And therefore, you carry regrets. So what are we going to do with our regrets? Here's the results, okay? I'm just going to give you the answer to this message right up front. When we ignore our regrets, we're bound to repeat them. So let's not ignore them. It'd be easy just to think about, you know what, lunch, we're going to go out to lunch today, and let's just think about that or something else or the warriors or whatever. But if we ignore them, we're bound to repeat them. The second result is this. When we wallow in them, we put ourselves on the sidelines. I can't tell you how many parents I've, I've heard say this. Listen, who am I to tell my kids how to live? Because I, and then they start listing their regrets. <laughs> when I was their age, I did this and this and this, and I regret it. So who am I? Or I go to somebody and say, hey, we need a community group leader. Could you lead one of our groups? And am like, no, 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 no. I, I can't lead that because I have. And then they start talking about their regrets. You know what regrets do to us? They put us on the sidelines of ministry the sidelines of all the things that God has called us to do. And so there is a third option. Instead of feeling disqualified or unworthy, we can do this third option. When we walk through our moral regrets in a biblical and a healthy way, our regrets actually can equip us to be useful to God. That's where we're headed today, all right? Can we walk there together? Because you might actually walk in here with regrets and walk out feeling like God has just equipped you and empowered you for ministry. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Book of Isaiah. So open up, all right? Isaiah. I know, like I say that, and some of you are like, I don't even know where to find that in the Bible. Peace cake. Grab the one in front of you. Just start flipping. Ready from the beginning? Boom. When you get to the peace psalms, right? Stop, and then just go a little bit farther. And Isaiah sixty-six chapters. You'll find it pretty easily. Okay. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter five because last week we were all over the first four chapters, and we're only going to be in this series for like four or five weeks. No way we're covering all 66 chapters. This is kind of an overview, all right? So we left off in the first four chapters where the residents of Jerusalem, this city, they made a series of poor decisions that would lead to massive regret later on. And so Isaiah is warning them, listen, the Assyrians, they're going to mess with you. Then the Babylonians, they're going to defeat you. And you're going to be sent into exile. This this whole living, this whole city you live in is going to be destroyed, But in the midst of that, in chapter one, God gives them this invitation. He says this, chapter one, verse 18. He says, come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's an amazing invitation. This book is all about warning, but there's also not just regret, there's hope. And he says this, I can forgive you, but but it means you come to me. And then we get to this chapter five. This is where we're going to pick up today. And, uh... Isaiah is about to tell them this poem or this song that God has written to his people. So God writes this poem or this song, gives it to Isaiah. Isaiah's like, hey, city of Jerusalem, nation of Judah, let me explain to you. God has written you a song, and it's a love song, kind of. I don't know, I've been reading this song all week long, and every time I read it, it sounds country to me. But I'm going to try not to go there, all right? Because it would not bless anybody. It reads this way. Are you there? Isaiah 5.1? I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. See, that's just country, isn't it? A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard. On a fertile hillside, he dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. air, burn But it yielded only bad fruit. Bad fruit, bad fruit, stinky, rotten fruit. I mean, there's the tagline of the song right there. And you're like, oh, wait, it's not much of a love song. It's actually a love song, like, to his ex or something like that. I mean, that's how country songs go, right? They start out great, and then you're like, oh, wait. And can you imagine if God sung you this song? Looking at you, and he's like, "Mm, bad fruit, bad fruit, stinky, rotten fruit. Like, this is not going to turn out well for us. Now, you might downplay the warning and say something like, well, maybe it's not going to be that bad. Verse 5. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow up there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. How bad's it going to be? Total destruction. I mean, it's a pretty clear warning that God is going to give the people what they actually want. What did the people want? They wanted life without God. Hey God, thanks for bringing us to the land. Thanks for helping us prosper. But God, honestly, we're going to do life without you. So we really don't want you. And along with that, we really don't want your morality and we don't want your ethics. We're going to do life on our own terms. And God's like, okay, go for it. I'm going to remove my protection. I'm going to remove my blessing. And let's see how that turns out for you. Now, maybe if you want to downplay the the warning of the song, you might say, well, maybe the song isn't about us. Maybe Isaiah just mistook it for, for being for us, and it's really for somebody else. Verse 7 The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, are the vines he delighted in, but he looked for justice, saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Okay, well, it's pretty much about us, and it's going to turn out poorly. We've messed up. But none of the regret has actually taken place yet. Because the Babylonians haven't come in yet. The Assyrians, excuse me, first haven't come in yet. And then the Babylonians, the consequences, he's saying, are coming. But in the very next chapter, Isaiah writes this description about how God has called him to be the messenger. And I want to read this. I, I want you to consider something. If you're a believer in Jesus and you believe that God has called you to something, like he's given you a message, he's given you a mission, he's given you a calling in life, and that should be every believer, then you might read chapter 6 from the point of view of Isaiah and what God does with him. Now, if you're somebody who's um, saying, you know what? I don't have any regrets in life. I really don't care about God's ethics or God's morality and really don't care about God's presence in my life. Maybe you're going to read chapter 6 from the view of um, being Israel and Judah. And it's a warning to you about who God is and what he can do in your life. So, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision. Now, watch me real quick. We're not sure if Isaiah has the vision right here in his head, and he's mentally seeing this, or physically he is seeing everything he's about to describe. It actually doesn't really matter, because this, what he's about to go through, is going to be unbelievably real to him. And this is how it goes, chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah, in that year— in the year that King Uzziah died, there we go, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So history tells us this. King Uzziah was a really good king. The, the land really prospered. The people prospered. The nation prospered underneath him. And he followed God, and God rewarded him. But it's interesting because there's this confidence that God was totally with the nation. And it's this confidence That leads to poor decisions. Because confidence isn't bad, right? But it when it's confident, self-reliance, like, why do I need God? Give you a prime example. 9-11, were you in the US? I mean, churches were full the following Sunday. And it just took a couple of months (laughs) to watch that go away. Because our false sense of security and safety returned, as if we could do life without God. So point number one in Isaiah's experience in uh, dealing with moral regret is this. Number one, we are ripe for moral regret when we are self-confidently complacent. Isn't that true? When you were hurting and struggling, man, you were really sensitive. Okay, God, what do you want? But man, when life was good, it's like we just become forgetful of who God is. Here's his vision. The next verse. Above him, above God, were seraphim, now, listen to the description of what a seraphim is. It's this angelic being, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is what He's seeing imagine if you physically saw that right in front of you? Now, these heavenly angelic beings, they're called seraphim. They're, they look, they're something from a sci-fi movie. And with their wings, they're covering their eyes and they're covering their feet. As if to say, when you match it with the words they're saying, holy, 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 and they're hiding themselves from God, it's as if this is happening. We're not worthy to be in God's presence, to gaze upon him, and to show our ugly feet. They're hiding their feet. Some of y'all know feet are ugly. Not to be brought into God's presence. They're hiding themselves. Because of the overwhelming awesomeness, possibly terror, of having a holy God right there in front of them. Now, when they say holy, 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 in Hebrew writing, the, the, the only way to, to stress something to its maximum degree is to repeat it three times. Because God's not holy. And he's not holy, holy. Holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And when they call this out in their voices, the room is shaking. It's interesting. In the book of Isaiah, 25 times, Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel. But you know, in all the rest of the whole Bible, the Holy One of Israel as a title for God only shows up six times. There's something about Isaiah that he believes that God is holy, and that's his experience I think what he's seeing is this, point number two, is that God has no moral regrets. There's something about God that is perfect. He's holy. He's actually beyond our comprehension. And if we claim to follow him, then don't miss this. There's an implication for us. His holiness becomes our ethics. His holiness becomes our moral compass. Has it? I, we want salvation. We want to get saved. We want forgiveness, right? We love that part. But the implication of God being a holy God and he's the one that we follow has his holiness actually been adopted as our ethics. And then something happens to Isaiah in verse 5. This is what he says Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see what he's saying? He's like, I I saw him. He was right there. I saw him. And most of the time in the Old Testament, when you see God, it's like, I'm gonna die. It's the fear of death. But when he sees him, what strikes Isaiah is this. Oh no, I'm unclean. Oh no, I, I have... Moral regrets. This is a horrible illustration, so I'm sorry about this. It's just so small compared to the scene that we're reading. But have you ever seen a commercial for like teeth whitening? Yeah? And you're like, oh, I have pretty white teeth. And they say, oh, hold up a Kleenex to your teeth. And you're like, oh, never mind. <laughs> They're not even just an off-white. they just like an off-yellow. Oh. When we hold up who God is and we get closer to him, here's what's going to happen. And every Christian, I think, has had this experience to some degree or another. The closer you get to who God is, to understanding who He is, the more you're going to realize that there's some sinful, ugly stuff in you. You're going to realize that there's selfishness, that there's corruption, there's constant just pleasure-seeking, And that's Isaiah's experience, and it's point number three, that the clearer God becomes to us, the more obvious our regrets become. By the way, that's not bad, but that's why some people avoid church and avoid Christians. They don't want to deal with a holy God because it reveals how unholy we are. But just when Isaiah thinks he's doomed, this happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. All the doom that God has pronounced on his people, Isaiah realizes that he is guilty of it and that he's actually doomed right along with them. But then God offers him forgiveness. Now, this atonement, The word atonement simply means this. It it means you paid for something. God somehow threw that coal from the altar. And the altar is typically where the sacrifice would be made, right? Isaiah didn't ask for it. It was 100% in this text initiated by God. It was God who initiated it. Isaiah didn't deserve it. He didn't ask for it. He didn't do anything for it. God all on his own initiates and provides a way. For those angelic beings to declare this, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You know what the name Isaiah means, technically? It means the Lord saves. In the book of Isaiah, uh, it is the, word, the word salvation is used 27 times. It's so interesting because we think of Isaiah as a book of just doom and gloom and just regret, but the word salvation is used 27 times. That's actually twice as many times as all the other Old Testament prophets combined. So you get these two words, holy, and then salvation that are used in conjunction. So here's, I think, the good news. I think the good news is this, number four, that God's holiness is matched only by his compassion. Isn't that good? Because if we're left with just God's holiness, we're, we're in trouble. But he offers Isaiah compassionately this Forgiveness. And I hope that you'll embrace this today. Because I know you came in here and you've got some moral regrets if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, we all walk through the muddiness of our moral regrets. And I want you to hear this that God's compassion for you matches his holiness of who he is. His love for you, his offer of forgiveness. It's beyond what you understand. But he offers it to you. It would be 700 years later that Jesus would come and offer his life as a ransom, as the payment for our regrets. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We weren't even around at that moment, right? We didn't initiate it. It was all God's doing to pay for our sins. How did he pay for them? Through death, through his son's death on the cross. And because of that, we don't have to ignore our regrets, pretending like, oh, we're not knee-deep in them. We also don't have to wallow in them and stay knee-deep in them. There's a way to move through them. We move through them when we acknowledge that he died for us. That his death paid for our sins and we accept that gift. That's a part of moving through it. We're going to get to the rest of this in just a moment. But God isn't done with Isaiah yet. Look at verse 8. It says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, hey, here am I, send me. It's such a weird deal. He, he gets forgiven at that moment. And then it's like, there's this, this he needs a messenger. And he's like, well, who's going to go? God moves from forgiving Isaiah to calling Isaiah to be his messenger. See, when we wallow in regret, we sideline ourselves from ministry. We think we are unqualified, unworthy, and canceled by God. That's what regret will do to us. So we sideline ourselves, right? I already brought it up. Well, how am I going to tell my kids how to live, right? I have regrets. How am I going to ever lead a community group? I got regrets. Who am I to help with students in student ministry? Who am I to help out our kids' ministry? I have regrets. Who am I to invite people to church? I mean, I got regrets. Who am I to disciple somebody else and help them grow up to maturity in Christ? I mean, I've got regrets, right? Who am I to post something Christian online, right? i got regrets. And we choose the sidelines of ministry instead of engaging with people because now we understand His holiness but also His compassion. Don't miss this. Regrets touched by God can actually make us effective messengers But wallowing in them sidelines us. When regret is confronted by holiness and compassion, it can actually equip us for ministry. Now, the problem is we don't actually hold them the same. Some of us, we hold holiness really, really well. Holiness without compassion, you know what that equals, right? It equals judgment. We all know people like this, right? They don't display the irresistibility of Jesus. They display holiness really, really well. And when they do it without compassion, it just comes across as judgment. Remember the people that Jesus was with? They were called Pharisees. They knew holiness really well. They knew compassion not at all. And Jesus railed against them. Um, Compassion, though, without understanding holiness, is just permissive. Parents, we deal with this, right? I mean, when you were raising your kids, maybe you're still doing it right now. Maybe you just had a kid. I mean, it's COVID season, right? I mean, there are all kinds of people having kids right now. And you're wondering, like, when my kid does something wrong and it's super obvious, I can't just go, hey, it's not a big deal, right? Because they're just going to do it again because we were just permissive. How do you, in parenting, how do you hold holiness and compassion in each of your hands with your kids to represent both? What you did, the regret that you carry, the sin, the guilt, the shame, it matters, But the answer to that is God's compassion for you. And as a parent, your compassion for them. You know how you hold both of those? You take your own regret seriously. To hold the holiness of God and the compassion of God together. Because of this, God's approach is this. Holiness matters, compassion matters. And when you have each of that, it leads to a humility in your life. Humility, I believe, is the required element to get us off the sidelines of life so that we become God's Messenger. I think that's what Isaiah is experiencing in this. He felt the weight of his sin, brokenness, and regret, but through this dramatic vision and this coal that comes from the altar of sacrifice, Jesus would come later and make that sacrifice, but he finds forgiveness. And Isaiah becomes the messenger to warn all of these people. And even though they wouldn't listen, I don't want to share the end of the story of Isaiah with you, right? But even though they wouldn't listen, They would come to have his text when they were living in Babylon, and his text of warning became a message of hope to the next generation. He took his own regret, and he had it turn around to be a message of hope for people. Do you know Alfred Nobel? He was born in 1833. He was a recluse man. Uh, He never married, but he invested in his professional life. He was a chemist, an engineer, an inventor, and a businessman. He's best known for inventing, you know this, dynamite, right? Dynamite was so unstable that later on he invented nitroglycerin, a little more stable thing that went boom, right? And it was used to kill an awful lot of people. Alfred actually believed this. He believed that he, if he could invent something that went boom, that could actually harm people, that the world in all of its wisdom, he could really save lives. Because surely if someone possessed that kind of explosive, that it would end wars sooner and no one would want to go to war. Um, Alfred drastically overestimated humanity's capacity for peace. So when Alfred's brother died, this is so interesting, the news mistakenly thought that Alfred had died. So Alfred had this weird out-of-body experience where the next day he got to read his own obituary in the newspaper. This is how it read. The title The Merchant of Death is Dead. The sum total of your life in that caption right there. Another headline would read this way Dr. Alfred Nobel, the mutilator, who became rich, finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Alfred thought that his inventions would bring peace. And the sum total of his life was death. And he was devastated. He was confronted by his great moral regret. And the next day, Alfred did this. He hired a legal advisor. And that legal advisor worked with him for two years to create a will. His last will and testament left 94% of his total wealth, the equivalent of $265 million, to create and fund the annual Nobel Peace Prize. Did you know that's where that came from? The peace prize is given to the person who has done the most or the best to advance fellowship among nations and uh, an abolition or reduction of standing armies and establishment of promotion of peace. He took his greatest moral regret and he turned it around to inspire peace and I think God invites us to do the same. Come on. But you can't avoid your regret or wallow in your regret, you got to walk through your regret. By doing two things, you got to take God's holiness serious, and you got to take His compassion seriously. So how do we do that? Let me share these two things with you. These are your action items. The first is this. Admit your failure. Get this. Daniel Pink, in his book on regret, the power of regret, he writes something that is actually trying to catch up with what Scripture has been declaring for thousands of years. He writes this. Writing about negative experiences, like regret, and even talking into a tape recorder about them for 15 minutes a day substantially increases overall life satisfaction and and improved their physical and mental well-being in ways that merely thinking about those experiences did not. What he said was this, if you want to get real, if you want to see your regrets change, quit thinking about them and write them down or tell someone else about them. In the Bible, we call that confession, admitting them making them real. He goes on, writing about regret or revealing regret to another person moves the experience from the realm of emotion into the realm of cognition. Instead of those unpleasant feelings fluttering around uncontrollably, language helps us capture them in a net, pin them down and begin analyzing them. This is not a Christian book. You see, when we just follow what we feel, regret will have a field day with you. But when you confess them to someone, you say, this is who I am and this is what I've done. Or if you write them down and say, you know what, this is who I am and this is what I've done. You're taking those feelings and you're putting them into words. And at that moment, you're really taking God's holiness seriously. Because you're saying, this is who I am and this is how I've messed up. But here's what's so interesting. Once you do that, you have the opportunity to embrace compassion too. And you take the word of God... With the words that you've written about This is who I am And God says, no, 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 no That's true And that takes my holiness seriously But let me show you the compassion that I have for you And the love I have for you And the forgiveness I have for you And you'll take something like 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 And with the words you wrote God writes you back And he says, here's a trustworthy saying That deserves full acceptance Now remember this, this is Paul writing this to Timothy The guy who killed Christians Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I'm the worst. That's what Paul writes. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Don't miss this. Whether you're confessing to someone your regret or you're writing it down, You keep going to God's word to see what he says to you. In Isaiah, he says, I'm going to touch your lips. I'm going to make you well. I'm going to remove your regret and your sin. Jesus shows up on the the scene 700 years later. He dies on a cross. And Paul's like, let me tell you, I'm the worst of sinners. I take holiness seriously. I've looked at who I am and I'm the worst. I killed Christians. He goes, but I understand what Jesus gives me in forgiveness and new life. And in the midst of that, he's like, I'm forgiven. And you can hold both of those together, but I don't think you can hold the compassion of God unless we're willing to say, this is who I am. I'm broken and I'm I'm sinful. I don't know where you're at today or what you've been through, whether you've been valuing all of God's holiness and beating yourself up for it. Grab his compassion. This is what he offers you. Or maybe you've been all compassionate you've never really come to grips with your own regret do that this week he gives this invitation that you're going to move from a person wallowing in regret to like isaiah becoming his messenger you see because like alfred nobel our greatest regrets can become our message of hope look what god did for me he picked me up turned me around And you can become a tremendous person of wisdom and hope and life and directing people to Christ. But only if we admit the regret, not wallow in it and move through it through God's holiness and compassion. Bow your heads, let's pray. I don't know what you need, but I do know this, there's a process of moving through regrets and God wants you God wants you to move through it, not be stuck in it. Would you have a conversation with God today? And maybe it's to take God's holiness serious. God, help me come to grips, write down, confess to somebody, this is who I am and what what I've done. Maybe you need to be the person who receives compassion and God's forgiven you, but man, you haven't forgiven yourself. Maybe all your life, people have been telling you about the holiness of God and how you've disappointed him and that's why you've never become a Christian and maybe you need to become a Christian today because you finally get it. His compassion matches his holiness. And would you say yes to him? I'm gonna invite you to have that conversation with Jesus right now. So God, I pray for those who are here. Whatever it is that you are bringing conviction on, would you make your holiness real and alive to them? God, would you make your compassion Lord, would it break our hearts so that we would actually be able to forgive ourselves, God, and move through regret to being your messenger. God, whatever you will call us to, we're here like Isaiah to say, here I am, God, send me. I'm available to you. And maybe we've been avoiding the mission. Help us not to, God. to Step in to following you. Be an example to others. Inviting them to the irresistible Jesus. Father, your blessing on this room, on these people. Help us to hear you and respond. If you agree, would you simply say, amen.